to Pitch Intense, the Fallon Entertainment Moving Pitching Podcast, and the first episode of 2019. Hello! Please be excited about that, Darren. If, if we can't be, then hey, will sorry, everybody sorry. else be? Thank you. No. <laughs> That's slightly that better. better. I don't know. Um, so we haven't done an episode since our um, Phase 4, well, pitched the entirety of Marvel's Phase 4, which... Who knows if we're going to be right with some of that. Well, we need to recharge. I mean, your Spider-Man pitch... It seems to have actually worked. Yeah, I think someone was listening. You've got Mysterio in there, so yeah, well done. Mysterio's oh my God, like, he looks so good. It does look... They went with the fishbowl. Uh, they actually made it look good. Yeah, oh yeah. They, and they gave him like the Doctor Strange rings. Exactly like I said. I'm waiting for my money, Disney. <laughs> you know my address. Whenever you're ready, just pop it over to us. We've got bills. Uh, we're homeowners now, so we've got to pay... Yeah. That, that's, that, that's home owners, not 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 the other thing. Um, <laughs> sorry, bad joke. Um, so yes, so today we are tackling our first movie pitching challenge of the year. Now we've had a lot on the back burner. Yeah. Whilst we've been away, we've been thinking about a lot of things, but this is one that got suggested by Darren that I never thought I would <laughs> ever see you suggest. What happened was <laughs> uh, I went to London uh, to watch the Bat Head of Hell musical. Now, I would like to recommend it to you, but unfortunately, it was it wrapped up its um, London stint in December. It'll be going on tour, though, won't it? It's touring. Um, I think so. I mean, it's there come went, back twice already. There was posters so. in the, the... I mean, the touring version ah, will ah, be different. Right, OK, yeah. But if you, it's still open, I think, in New York, and I think it's in Australia, so it's all over the world. If you can go and see a full-blown, proper production of this, please do go and see it. Like, mm. The story is arse. But that's like basically like you could say that about most jukebox musicals. It's fine. The the staging and particularly the singing. Now that is down to the cast. I saw was absolutely amazing. So so good. And I just got really excited thinking I would love to have a go at trying to pitch just a musical. And then the one bolt of inspiration I needed for the band in particular I was going to base it on hit me, and I was like, oh my god. And I wrote my pitch basically then and there. You messaged me being like, we're doing this. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. If you didn't want to do it, I would just read it myself. <laughs> I just sat there and read it from time to time to make myself happy. Um, so I am very excited about this. Maybe overly excited. You might poo-poo all of my idea. But I personally love it. Well, yeah, um, it was a good suggestion. It's uh, Musicals are something that I've been involved in myself in the past. Not only just backstage, on stage, front of house, you name it. I've, I've done it, so I'm very happy to be doing something related to musicals. But the jukebox musical choice was something that I thought was a bit rogue. So I kind of approached this a little bit differently. I had to go with something a bit more bit more current, a bit more fresh in my mind, rather than, say, like the a tour through the classics like mm-hmm. Bat Out of Hell is and yeah. other jukebox musicals that are on the scene. Except maybe American Idiot, that's very... Yeah. Very current. Yeah. Uh, but yes, Darren, I went first last time. Yes. Uh, so it is your turn. The first pitch of 2019 belongs to you. Now, unfortunately, usually with these things, we try and keep our pitches secret from each other. We do. But with this one, we just do a little test of question usually to make sure we're not going to turn up and, oh no, we've both written the Vanilla Ice musical. So <laughs> I. Shit. Could you imagine? <laughs> could you actually imagine? So, well, also, cool as ice, it already exists. <laughs> Does it? It was a film. <laughs> They gave Vanilla Rice a film. Ah, um, So we asked each of the questions. And usually it starts with quite a broad question. And then we'll get narrower as we try and figure out, like, you know, piece out who's what's what. And then we can... (laughs) Unfortunately, we had to ask a lot of follow-on questions. So it was like, when is it about? Mid-2000s. Fuck. Okay. What genre is it? It's pop punk. Oh, God. (laughs) Um, Are they... they, 
and I think he's like, are they still going? And you were like, yeah, kind of. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh no. So unfortunately, we both already know the bands that yes. it's based off, which thank fuck for that. Um, but we don't know whether we went... We, well, this thing, when I've said we want to do a musical one, because obviously we just come off the back of Bohemian Rhapsody, mm-hmm. the offer was on the table to do a jukebox musical, so something like uh, Mamma Mia, for want of a better example. Mm. Um, I've just forgot to charge my laptop, Michael. Talk for a second. Yeah, a <laughs> Jesus Christ. Would have ended very We're a professional badly. outfit, ladies and right, gentlemen. There we go. We're fine. Everything's fine here. Um, so, Mamma Mia style of doing it, where it's, you know, um, a proper musical, or do it like Bohemian Rhapsody, where it is the story of a band mm. with music in the background. Now, I know if things were better, you would probably want to do Biffy Clyro. Unfortunately, they have a film coming out this year. So. Yeah. I can't do that because when Balance Not Symmetry arrives in cinemas this year, I will be the first goddamn person to buy the ticket. Oh, I will imagine. be there to see. It. Laura Harry is in it, but which is weird. Who? Um, Vulture's daughter from Homecoming. Oh, she's oh. in. It. Okay. So, so that's a thing. Cool. Rogue choice, but cool. Which is English? Um, I think she is. Fair play. Okay. Um, now. In it, I would actually, had it not existed, would have wrote the Bad Out of Hell musical because <laughs> it's just time of time. Um, now, you thought I was going to go for Bon Jovi. I, I really did. I've soured on Bon Jovi in the last few years. You used to be the biggest fan of Bon Jovi going, but for some reason it's just not I mean, everything, my balls anymore. The thing is, you would have to have played with a lot of his new material and everything post this left feels right is oh. uh, fucking dreadful for lack of a better word. Uh, I've got time for the circle. Circle's not bad. Mm. But Lost Highway, and especially the new one, hmm. the these houses are not for sale. These houses? Well, it's this house. But when you hear the song, he's clearly saying, these houses are not for sale. <laughs> it's just the worst goddamn thing. And he's, he's gone full Bono, in my opinion. Hmm. So that was it. I played with Guns N' Roses for a little bit. But I thought, I just don't know. Beyond the title of Appetite for Destruction, there's not much to play with. Because you wouldn't call it the fucking the spaghetti incident. No. So Whoa, that would sell too. Man, so I had to go with something that basically, and it's a, it's an album I've come back to a lot recently in the last few years. Now, that might make it sound like I'm sad, given the context of who I'm about to give you, but it's not. I've just realised just how goddamn good this album is. It's mm. based primarily on one album, an album I consider to be one of the greatest of all time. Um, we've all the songs sprinkled in from their catalogue, but. The second that bolt hit me, as I was walking back up to this house, it all kind of formed, because it has a basic plot anyway. Mm. So, sit down, everybody, uh, and listen to my pitch for the My Chemical Romance musical film. Those are fucking words I've heard now. I know. So I'm just going to say, now, obviously, we're not going to put music in here, because we don't want to be sued. Yeah. But both me and Michael have curated Spotify playlists that play through this uh, in chronological order of the songs as we mention them. I will do some editing because we're going to play them to each other just so we get the full effect of it. And mm. I encourage you to do that too. We'll put the links in the um, podcast description to go to our um, Spotify account. We might make YouTube playlists as well just in case that's your uh, way of doing these things. Yeah. So you too can listen along. Um, and I'll put in like a sound effect whenever a song is about to play. So you can listen to that song to get the context of what we're doing here. Okay. The title is just The Black Parade. Obviously. Easy. And the tagline would be, he's not okay. <laughs> I love it. So, um, I'm just going to walk you through. I won't give you casting characters up front. I'm just going to walk you through it. I'm just going to say, no, <laughs> it's fucking eye concept. <laughs> but here we go. So, 
I'm just going to move the laptop a little bit round, just so it's a little easier. This is probably very bad on the audio, but there we are. Who cares? Okay, so we open on the Black Parade. Now, don't go and listen to that right now, because this isn't the version of the Black Parade you're expecting. This is the full fucking macabre spectacle, right? Because we're in hell. Awesome. <laughs> It's not the proper version, so it's not the ha- somewhat happy kind of, yeah. Da, 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 yeah. Da, 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 that version. This is like all sad organ music version of this, mm. right? Because we are seeing the parade of the dead into the underworld, right? This is, okay, it's more purgatory than anything. Mm. It's, it's the Black Parade. The dead are being led into the afterlife by the Grim Reaper, uh, whose name is Erebus. You can find me on the uh, pronunciation. He's the Greek god of death. Mm. Not death, sorry, of darkness. But not the not the Grim Reaper no, no, as such. No, no, he's... Well, he's dressed like the Grim Reaper. He's got all oh, okay. the... But I'm just giving him a name. Cool. Instead of having to refer to him as the Grim Reaper, he's Erebus. He's the primordial deity of darkness. Fucking emo as fuck. I love it. Uh, and he's played by Jeff Bridges. Because mm. um, I find someone who like got that kind of... I was originally going to do Christopher Walken. <laughs> I was like, no, you cast Christopher Walken, you're asking for a very specific park. Well, I and was... I, <laughs> no a young boy my father <laughs> put the watch up his ass anyway See, exactly you can't do that um, he's accompanied by demons and they are leading the dead to the afterlife that's necessarily to hell but it don't look good for him right mm. and it's like I said the full macabre fucking spectacle it's grim as fuck organ music and it's proper sad version of Welcome to Black Parade mm. so his son Caron Caron um, Caron is yes. that with a H uh, no it's spelled C-H-A-R-O-N but it's pronounced Caron as opposed to Sharon Yes. Sharon. Um, now, he's the ferryman on the river Styx. Mm. You do fight him in a God of War game. Can't remember which one, um, but that's his son. Uh, he's played by Diego um, Benita from Rock of Ages. Okay. I must admit, actors who can sing, harder to find than you would expect. Mm. But I've gone, oh, he's fine, he's about the right age. Um, now, he's basically Gerard Way in, in the actual Black Raider. He's got white hair. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, uh, now he's the next in line to become the Grim Reaper but he doesn't want to take the role mm. um, Erebus is getting older his dad's getting older and worries that his powers may begin to falter any day now um, leading to the souls any souls he doesn't take to the afterlife becomes permanently stuck in purgatory he needs Caron to kind of take on this role but mm. he's just not having it Caron feels he has so much more to live for than kind of this big burden of his chance job and he isn't convinced of the need to ferry the dead to the afterlife having never spent a day in the world of the living. So he doesn't know what, you know, he just knows them as abstract souls. He doesn't really know the humans behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, so him and his mate, Ether, who is another, um, in Greek mythology, he's the son of, uh, he's another son of Erebus, but I just needed a name. Mm. Um, he's actually the god of, god of air, but mm, he's just a name. Um, he's played by Wayne Robinson. You won't have heard of him. I haven't. He was this awesome guy in Bad Out of Hell. Okay, you've cast who, somebody from the film. Yeah, okay. he did two out of three ain't bad, and he's got this awesome fucking deep guttural rock voice and I was like Christ I want him in a thing <laughs> so he's just playing that he's basically here for one song um, and they discuss their feelings and this we get the first song of the uh, of the ordeal I'm Not Okay which is Caron singing amongst the dead kind of swinging between the souls giving context to the words um, as if he's talking to the souls and saying I'm not okay but obviously they're not listening so he just tries to discuss his problems with his mother Nyx, who is the goddess of uh, night and uh, husband of Erebus in Greek mythology, played... Now, there's a reason for this. Mm. She's played by Liza Minnelli. 
Right, okay. A little bit of lore will come into this in a second. Um, there's a very distinct reason why it needs to be Liza Minnelli. Um, she hasn't acted in anything for a long while, but uh, it's a yeah. relatively small thing, and there's previous here, so it's fine. Um, but she reminds him that this was supposed to be his brother's job, and his brother's played by Dominic Cooper, um, mm, like before that. he went up to the real world and never came back. Right. Um, having been driven insane by what he saw up there. Mm. So she shows him a letter he wrote that shows how much he hated the real world. Um, now, this is where we hear the second song of the movie. This is Mama being sung by Dominic Cooper, but you can't really see him. He's just this kind of like abstract big, like he's got a hood up and everything, so you can't really make him mm. out. And it's an overblown version of the world above. Uh, his brother screaming like this apocalyptic scene, because obviously... This the song is quite like ha, um, so it's the overblown version of what the worst of humanity could look like because she's trying to scare Carol. Okay. So um, the reason he had to be Liza Minnelli, hopefully, was obvious to some people. Uh, if you listen to Mama all the way through, there's a bit where Mama or Mother War talks back to Gerard Way. That's actually Liza Minnelli. Ah. Oh, Gerard Way went out of his way to get Liza Minnelli to come and sing on his song because he was bored of just singing to himself, basically. Mm. So we're playing on Mama's kind of... It's, he's, it's him screaming about a war and how it's all terrible and apocalyptic and he's writing to his mom to like blame her for everything. So we put that into context of Dominic Cooper went up there, it's all wrong. She's trying to scare Karen into doing the right thing by saying, well, look what happened to your brother. Um, but we never get a clear shot at Dominic Cooper. Um, so he has one. He has basically a final blowout argument with his dad, uh, and Karen decides, right, I'm going to escape the underworld. Uh, I'm not doing this job. I'm going up to the real world. Um, he winds up in Battery City. Now, this is a city that's mentioned a lot in the Danger Days album, which mm. is the one that followed up Welcome to the Black Parade. Um, it's a rundown industrial city, but like Detroit in RoboCop, mm. but like not that extreme, but like n- not great. Still pretty shitty. Yeah, because obviously this is a very high-concept film. We're not going for realism, so it can look quite shit. Mm. Um, now, he winds up going to the roughest part of town, and he goes into a bar, um, just to try and find humans to talk to. He didn't know what, what they're doing. Um, and he tries talking to the patrons, but they're all wasted and sad because they're in dead-end dead end jobs. This is where we get the song The Sharpest Lives, uh, which is sang by the patrons kind of bemoaning their miserable lives. Uh, at this point, Erebus kind of learns of his escape, um, and on Karen kind of like stumbles out this bar, like, "Oh God, I got to get away from this place." And um, as he's walking just along the roads, Erebus starts to possess people and has them like trying to scare Karen straight. Mm. Um, so, and he starts appearing to Karen in these like horrible visions, which is where we get the song "The House of Wolves," which would be Karen running through the streets of Battery City. Whilst it's all, like, turning into hell. Mm. So, just imagine the fucking... Like, Inception level, but, like, also, it's going wrong. So there's demons in the fucking sky. He's just having this terrible vision. He promises Karen welcome crawling back to him soon and makes it so that he can see the demons of death everywhere he goes. So basically, in the real world, the demons of death are the ones that kind of take them into purgatory right mm. so he's seen them everywhere now whenever there's right. like people ill he's seen them like glaring over their body and stuff like that um so Caron thinks the only people who knows well kind of knows and the soul things are dead people so he thinks where is there the highest chance of dead or dying people i know the cancer ward in the hospital i see yes um i see you actually <laughs> <laughs> is that um, a reference 
intensive care unit. Uh, uh, um, so, and obviously, if you don't know about the Black Parade, it is the story of someone who gets cancer mm-hmm. and kind of progressively dies over the course of the album. Um, so, um, he goes to the cancer ward. I mean, you get two songs back to back. They are the two songs that kick off um, the Black Parade. They have to be played together yeah. because they bleed into each other. Right. So we hear the end first, which is the first song on the album, mm-hmm. which is sang by the patients and the doctors of them just kind of um, singing about, you know, they're coming to the end of their life. They've all got cancer, terminal cancer in most cases, and it's not going great for me. It's a really kind of somber, sad song. That is immediately followed by, oh, this is probably my favourite song idea I have of the whole thing so right as the end ends mm-hmm. and if you listen to the music all the way through and play it back to back with um, the next song Dead with an exclamation mark um, the end of the end ends with a flat line mm. and it goes straight into if you play them back to back they bleed seamlessly into each other Yeah. and Dead is a lot more happy and upbeat jazzy song yeah. about death of how like I've always pictured it in my head do you know the bit in Family Guy mm. where Peter has to tell somebody they've got AIDS yeah and he does it with like You'll a... have AIDS. Yeah, way. exactly that. that. Yeah. that picture that in your head as we play Dead, which is jazz hands in demons kind of sweeping into the wall there, like doors <laughs> because someone's died and they're happy they're about to take them off uh, to the land of the dead because they're so glad they're happy about it. So they're in like full-blown top hats, jazz handing it up. Instead of like, you know, <laughs> taking off their jazz, their hat to do a dance, they're taking off their head... <laughs> It's just, it's the full-blown, like, this is like, because it's tinged with comedy all the way through this. Because mm. I think if you did this as like a straight-shoot cancer musical thing, it's far too goddamn grim. Mm. So I've tried to use bits of it to kind of inject it with comedy and a bit of personality, because that's kind of, my God, I have got a sense of humour. Mm. Like, you'll see that with the, the last scene in particular, but yeah. Um, so that's probably my favourite scene of the whole thing. Um, and I must admit, there are parts of this that creak a little bit because I was determined to have every single song on the Black Parade in this in yeah. some form. Um, and I think so far that's all we've used. Yeah, we've only used Black, uh, Black Parade songs so far. That will not continue. There are a few of us in there. Don't we? Oh, wait, no, I'm not okay. He's not from the Black Parade. Mm. That's from um, Free Jeeves Street Revenge, their one before the Black Parade. Uh, anyway, so Caron meets a punky kid named Helena, played by Lily James. Uh, uh, oh, so good casting. Choice. Yeah, thank you. Um, so she was in Mamma Mia mm. as young... Uh, Meryl Streep yeah. um, but she was also in uh, Baby Driver etc um, so she's playing like punky kid Helena um, who has cancer but he's trying to live her best life she's there as a student nurse mm-hmm. um, and she's working at the cancer ward whilst going through chemo um, there's That's awkward there's awkward flirting going on uh, the next day um, Karen goes back to the ward because you know he's kind of a bit infatuated with her. it's the first time he's ever talked to him nicely uh, since he's been on Hearth. Anyway, so he goes there and Hella introduces him to Dane, who's played by Cody Smith McPhee, who was oh, Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler yeah, yeah. Um, who's in that Alpha, which I never got round to watch. Never got to this Alpha. Um, which looked interesting. Uh, who's another cancer patient um, who also starts seemingly flirting with Helena. Mm. Uh, on the spot, Caron tells her that I have cancer too, thinking that's what she likes mm. and she's into cancer guys. <laughs> um, Dane thinks, like, looks at him with like a pitied look. And says, like, look, I'm gay. You don't need to worry about it. We're just friends. <laughs> and he's like, 
oh no, now I'm stuck. <laughs> no, I can't. I've got to pretend to have cancer. Uh, he's got to keep up the cancer pretense the whole time. Now, I have condensed this a little bit. Uh, we see them falling in love. This is your nice middle act of them kind of falling in love with each other. There is a montage song um, to the sound of na 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 the song from Danger Days. Um, you know, it's just a montage song to kind of, when you listen to the lyrics, it's a very upbeat song of two teenagers falling in love. Mm. I would point out that would be more of like an instrumental because the lyrics don't really help me in that situation. But it's just, yeah, it's na na na, it's upbeat, it's happy, good times. Uh, we see both the good and the bad. So they talk about all the cliched things uh, they won't get to do as they grow up. Because um, both have cancer, so they're saying like uh, they won't be able to write love songs to each other. I should point out they're like early twenties type of thing, um, so they're not going to be able to write like cliche, like love songs with cliches titles like af- named after a girl, or they won't get to go and do you know have kids, have a family, and all that stuff. Um, and we are seeing the good and the bad, so we're seeing them kind of having fun, but also seeing some of the ramifications from chemo. Um, they go to like a crazy mosh party, um, which gets really quite mental. Um, this is to just to be able to crowbar teenagers in there. <laughs> because if you listen to the album back to front, you'll notice that teenager doesn't really fit with anything else that's going on. <laughs> just like, fuck, we've written a banger, we've got to put it on the album somewhere. <laughs> we've written a banger. So it, keeping that spirit alive. Yeah. 2007. <laughs> so keeping that in spirit, we're just kind of shoving that in there. And it would be, there's a band playing at this mosh party, which would be My Chemical Romance in disguise. Fair enough. Um, and they're singing. So Caron is like singing whilst being battered in a mosh pit. So he's singing along, but he's just getting absolutely marmaladed. Um, he's scared but he's also kind of enjoying himself Mm -hmm. they're enjoying themselves but unfortunately Helen kind of has like an attack and it's like oh oh, she's feeling all weak of a sudden so they have Mm -hmm. to kind of get out there should point out the My Chemical Romance when we play My Chemical Romance it would just be the band members they would be called The Fabulous Killjoys which is the name of their gang from the Danger Days album and all the videos I don't I'm I'm kind of into that album a little bit but not that much Mm. um so uh, they go back to um, the ward. Uh, um, oh, wait, no, sorry. They go back to the um, uh, Helena's apartment, which is where we get cancer, which is not a happy song because mm. it's called cancer. Um, and Helena's singing it as she kind of slumps around her apartment, um, showing the class between, between like her punky apartment and all the kind of posters and the cool aesthetics she's got on with all the equipment and the medical equipment she's got around, just show that stark contrast between the two and the two lives you've been trying to lead. So obviously that involves the living, because the hardest thing of this is leaving you. That You know, they're starting to fall in love with each other, but she's going to... She's a little bit apprehensive, and so is Karen, because she's like, well, this can't last forever. She thinks it's because she's got cancer. He knows because he's yeah. basically a mortal. That's what I was just about to say after listening to that song. It's like, oh, that's going to be like one of those, Yeah, she thinks that shit that he understands her, but he's like, oh, God, this is... Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I feel that's why I wanted to put it right after Teenagers, so you get that kind of happy, poppy kind of thing, and then boom, hit you right in the feels. Mm. I want people to cry, Maggle. Um, so after a particularly bad week, Helena is exhausted. Uh, it's at this point that Erebus pops back up because he said he was going to, you know, he needs to get Caron back to the underwear. So he pops up 
Uh, and the pair argue whilst Helena's trying to sleep. So Helena's in the apartment trying to sleep, but like Erebus is there in the room with them. Because he's just manifested or is Yeah, he... okay. basically. So it's it's a bit of an ab- abstract plane. This. this is for the song Sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a bit of an abstract thing. Picture the upside down from Stranger Things, right? Okay. So you've got the bed with Helena in here in this kind of dark void of him half singing the song to her. Because you could kind of read the lyrics of Sleep to mean... In this instance, two things. Yes. So he's trying to not argue with his... He's shouting his dad whilst at all time trying to calm her and get her to sleep. Yeah. So you take the lyrics, as I said, of go to sleep, Helena, and also he wants his dad to leave, and he's saying sleep, because sometimes you're hamstrung by what the lyrics are. Um, because you're not writing them yourself. Um, Helena eventually falls asleep, and this leads to him telling his dad that he will never take over the family business we go straight into another song this is called This Is How I Disappear which is Caron walking out of the building back to his apartment and it's kind of a reversal of the House of Wolves songs he's not running away from his dad he's slowly walking away he's not scared anymore he's like just melancholic at this point yeah and his dad's still taking over people to try and get him but he's just like shoving him off and just ignoring them um, because he's just said right now this has not worked out I'm even more miserable than before but I'm definitely not having any more part of his death business Obviously, we're playing on the lyrics of this is how I disappear. He's saying, right, I am leaving. You'll never see me again. Your power will wane. Eventually, you can't come back up here and I will be gone forever. It's a great sort of like melancholic chord progression. Like, again, in the, this sig- point signifies the point in the album where he's just, he's just fucking done. He's accepted his fate and he's at that kind of anger point of grief of mm. just fuck this. Um, so, in a last ditch attempt to get his son to come back, Erebus makes him a deal. Mm. Come back to the land of the dead, take on your destiny and your job, which is, you know, rightfully yours, and I'll use the last of my power in my role to cure Helena of cancer. That's the fucking bricks. Caron rejects this. He's like, look, she's going to die eventually, right? I could be damned for all of eternity if I take this deal. I do fucking love her, but... No, but obviously he's very fucking conflicted about this, mm. but now he's got to go and break up with her because he can't be around her knowing he could save her, so he's got to get rid of her. Um, so this is where we have the song, I Don't Love You Like I Did Yesterday. Uh, yeah, um, Ron the Ward, and it's very sterile backgrounds again, mm. just to kind of, it's bleak, it's a bleak song. We're in the trough, people, don't worry, we will eventually go back up. Um and so I wanted that really kind of like sterile nastiness of a hospital because it's just such like a like ripping a plaster off this is there's nothing nice about this breakup song it's a proper like just empty thud of like I just don't love you anymore mm. it's obviously a shill he does he just needs to get the point across that they are breaking up Caron becomes deeply unhappy at this point and becomes resigned to the fact that he can't run forever He's like, I will only keep meeting people, new people, falling in love with them, only to see them kind of leave. Kind of like Wolverine's problem. He mm. knows he's going to outlast everyone he ever falls in love with, and that's not great. So, convinced he hasn't seen anything worth staying on Earth for, he sets up for a return to the underworld. This is the point where we hear the song Disenchanted, which is the point in the album where he's resigned to his fate, but he's not angry about it anymore. He's just like really sad about all the things he didn't get to do. Mm. It's a really lo-fi Moby version of this song where he basically smashes up his apartment. So the really violent like swings of it have been down, like clashed with this really kind of downbeat song of him just accepting that 
I'm going to have to go back to the underworld. I can't accept this forever. That's my part in life. But he's not happy about it. So we're kind of hinging that song on the lyric of you're just a sad song with nothing to say. He's kind of looking in the mirror saying like, you know, what have you, these people are dying. You're going to live forever. You've known about this job for years. It's no surprise to you. Fucking sack up. Go do your job. Um, but he's just kind of dejected at this point. He's not looking forward to his life. Um, it's at this point that Dane appears in his room, mm. out of nowhere, sat in a chair. He reveals that he's not really Dane. This is Charon's brother, Thanatos, hey. who is the god of death from the game of, uh, from God of War, uh, goes to Sparta. Mm-hmm. Very, very underappreciated God of War game. Go and play it. It's, you go back to Sparta. It's awesome. Um, and he had not gone insane. Uh, it's his brother, Dominic Cooper. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he turned from um, Cody McVie Smith or whatever his name is yeah. into Dominic Cooper and says, I didn't go insane. Um, he just made it seem like they did so their dad would leave him alone after tormenting him to come back. So his dad subjected him to the same stuff. Never told his wife about it because he didn't want to seem like he was torturing their children. Hmm. Um, he just made it seem like the world had driven him insane. Um, and since he has been taking in all the world has to offer moving constantly to avoid the attachment that Charon's now um, a bit scared of. Uh, and he sent his brother into the world, so he came to the cancer ward and disguised himself as somebody else. Uh, and at this point, he's trying to convince his brother to stay and say, look, there is more to this world. There's happiness to be found. you just got to be devoid of contact. You know, just don't think of yourself as human. And there's so much more you can have down here. Um, but Charon's actually angry at him for being a coward, basically. Um... Again, this has been manufactured just to have the song Famous Last Words put in, uh, which is a duet between the two. Um, and again, we'll chop and change the lyrics if we need to. Yeah. And uh, hopefully when you listen to this, you can understand it can kind of be sung as a duet. Again, we're kind of hooking onto the lyric of I know that I can't make you stay, which is what Thanos was singing. And then Charon's the one that's like, where's your heart, etc. So we frame it as a kind of duet. Now, the last part of that where he's like, I see you lying next to me, doesn't really work. We might chop that bit out just for the sake of storytelling. But yeah, they have a a big old fucking argument about it. Thanatos can't really convince him of the kind of devoid of attachment thing. Mm-hmm. And he decides that he's wrong to stay unattached. And that, you know, what's the point of even being up here if you can't experience the one good thing about life, which is love. See, it's a love story. Um, (laughs) It just so happens to be about gods and cancer. Yes, it does. So he decides to do something right before he leaves. Mm -hmm. Um, He finds Helena. I forgot to mention this, not a crucial plot point, but something early on. Helena's, when they're falling in love, they're organising a kind of charity uh, cancer thing for the ward and everything Mm -hmm. that Helena's kind of in charge of. Um, She's been organising it all the way through the movie. Um, And it's happening, but it's a bit sad because obviously it's a charity cancer thing with all the patients from the ward. Yeah. Helena's not looking great. Um, in a bit of Back to the Future-ishness, Caron jumps on the stage and kind of comedies the microphone. Mm. Um, and he apologises for being so cliche about this, but he's kind of come to his senses. This is where we get Bulletproof Heart from days uh, from Danger Days. Um, the pie's a little slice of this kind of... It's a very, like, uh, excited song. Yeah. And the lyrics kind of work as well of him trying to, like... Um, you know, say it's basically something that says, "Look, we're both a bit weird, we're both a bit broken, but you know, there's something good here." Yeah. 
And so this kind of gets the party back in motion. We have other songs. They start dancing together. They're back on the same page. And she shows him whilst they're dancing, like, look, everyone in this room is either dying or getting ready to grieve, but they're still having fun. You know what I mean? Life is sad. Life is tinged with sadness the whole way through, but there's a lot of fun to be had. The vast majority of times are going to be fun. And that's kind of the point of the roller coaster, right? It's good and bad. You've got to take both. To appreciate the highs, you've got to have the lows. Uh, convinced of the good in the world and seeing the dead as more than just souls that need shepherding, he tells Helena that uh, he doesn't see death as the end, just the next step on the journey. They raise a toast and say to each other, may death never stop you. Well, that's why he says to her, may death never stop you, clink the glasses. That is the name of... Um, Michael Ramkanti's greatest hits album. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was ever going to have a stupid, like, wordy tattoo, I would have my def- "May Death Never Stop You" tattooed on me somewhere. <laughs> Here we are. They go back to Helena's apartment. Uh, Caron explains that he left her because he's dying. Kansas called up to him. He's making up, obviously. Yeah. Um, he says he's going to leave um, for a private centre um, where he's going to be receiving experimental treatment just in case they can turn him around. Uh, she wants to go with him, but he says he can't say he can't take saying goodbye to her. We just we too much for him. Mm. Um, he wanted to have one more perfect day before he leaves. He was hoping this was it for her. Uh, they spend the night together, and in the morning he leaves, leaving her a note. Mm-hmm. Um, we see Karen walking the streets, waiting for his dad to come take him back. Um, then he falls down, clutching his chest, and he's like, "You're making me die." And he hears his dad say, well, how else are you going to come back to the world of the, under- uh, the, world, the, the underworld? Um, his brother comes to find him at this point, And whilst um, his brother's there whilst he's basically dying in his arms. Um, his brother repents for running away from everything and promises to be the one to replace him one day. Um, Caron forgives his brother before he dies. Happy days. Helena wakes up to find the note that Caron left her. Uh, in the note, Caron explained that how much he helped him see life for what it really is. He apologised, but he felt the need to write her a song with a cliched title. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's cute. No, no. Uh, he promises to wait for her on the other side before signing off, May Death Never Stop You. Mm. Um, we see the title to the song is Helena. Ah, of course. Um, so at Caron's funeral, um, Helen takes a stand and tells the congregation about the note. This is where we get Helena. The song by I Can Work A Romance from um, Frigid's Sweet Revenge, which is the So Long and Good Night song mm-hmm. named after Gerard Way's nan, who was called Helena. Hopefully people picked that up early on, that that's what was going to happen in the end. Yeah. Um, you ever seen the music video to So Long Good Night? They're at a funeral. So it's basically the exact same. Uh, a bit softer, because it's quite intense, that video. <laughs> yeah. A bit softer, and it's flipped. So Gerard Way's in the coffin, essentially, and the pretty girl's singing about him. Yeah. Um, because it's her singing. I realised she didn't really have a song to herself, so I've given it Helena. The next day, she goes in for her usual weekly checkup, and the doctor looks puzzled. Her cancer's receding, because he took the deal. Yeah. Um, so we kind of skip forward a few months later. We see Helena walking to the cancer ward, where she's showered with applause and hugs. There's a banner over her head that says, Fuck Cancer. Um, <laughs> nice. We see Thanatos, so Dane is in the ward. And his narration informs us that she's in complete remission. We see that Karen is reading the letter from his brother to kind of tie that little thing mm-hmm. up. Um, and who signs off by asking for a few more decades before he takes the big job from his younger brother. Um, Caron puts on his new suit 
which is the marching band costume from the Black Parade video. Yeah. And we get a reposal of the Black Parade, but it's the proper version. And and I quote, it's fucking amazing. Um, <laughs> so obviously the bit where he says, when I was a young boy, my father, that's him walking to his new job because mm-hmm. his father did take him into the City of the Dead to see a marching band. So there we go. See, it's all tying it's together. All um, and yeah, so it's just, it's really like, think Coco, like that level of Day of the Dead, they're all kind of happy. It's a happy occasion. They're taking the next step on the journey. Um, and it is basically a recreation of the... Of the, of the end of Coco, the, basically. Well, you, that plus music video for... Black yeah, Blade, you, you've so. got to have kind of like that. Yeah. There will be the guy who definitely looks like the patient kind of shuffling around there. If I can actually get the bloke who played the patient yeah. to be in there, I'd be fucking amazing. Um, yeah, so we see his mum and dad looking on at this point, And Erebus says how proud he is that he came back. And Nick's his wife says, well, he came back quicker than you did, which implies that Erebus pulled a similar stunt when he was younger um, before he took the job, which is how he met his wife. Um, he went to the land of the living and there she was, they fell in love, mm-hmm. opening the door for Helena to become Karen's wife down the, down the road. Yay. Um, and that's kind of the end of it. So we go out, the credits roll on the full blown black parade. One post-credit scene. Oh. Because this is also a callback to the album, because didn't you know there's a hidden track on Welcome to the Black Parade? I did not. Uh, Cool. Uh, We come back to Helena. She's now got her natural hair uh, and a full sleeve tattoo that has uh, May Death Never Stop You written on the forearm. Mm -hmm. Um, She walks into the mortuary uh, to ask for a report where she's greeted by a strange new orderly. Um, He creepily greets her, gives her the report, and she walks out looking very confused. Uh, We stay with the orderly to turn around to reveal it's Erebus, it's Jeff Bridges, uh, he's gone to the real world, which basically he's on vacation here, it's not his job anymore, and he's working in a mortuary, because where else would the Green Reaper work? <laughs> and this is where we get Blood, which is the hidden track off of Welcome to the Black Parade. Mm. And this gets a reprisal of the Jazz Hand Demons as well, just for extra effects. <laughs> so we go out with Campy Jeff Bridges, his absolute maximum full tilt, singing full Blood tilt. with Jazz Handy Demons, because I wanted them back at some point. Yeah. <sighs> is that the final is it like <sighs> after the dun dun black Dump, and there yeah. we go so that was my pitch for Welcome to the Black Parade the musical very high concept you were right there <laughs> well I thought you can't really do that album without high concept in it and yeah, I feel like I wouldn't true. be able to do the full emo like aesthetic mm. without needing demons <laughs> yeah that's true and death um, so that was the way and I feel like the good thing is you don't really need to change a lot of the lyrics because I've very loosely followed the same story that the album has mm. about, you know, kid getting cancer, going through the several stages of that, dying, and then blood kind of coming at the end to be like, it's all a joke, don't worry, it's fine. Um, so, yeah, that was knackering. I pretty much wrote that, other than a few tweaks here and there, mainly for casting and just kind of um, crowbarring in one or two songs more. That mm-hmm. was written in one, one sit-down thing. Nice. As like a bolt from the blue. So I realise it needs cutting down. I probably don't need every song from Welcome to the Black Parade, but I felt the need to at least try and do that. And they are all here, present and correct. There's nothing missing for better and for worse. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Darren. So, yeah. Thoughts? Um, yeah. I As soon as the action moves to Earth, yeah. I, I like it. I think the the high name thing is the only thing that drags it down for me. It's, right. it's the... You know, Karen, I can get behind. Yeah. Not, not Karen, not 
I not, get behind Karen. <laughs> I mean, not since the last incident where I got, hey. got reprimanded. Um, but, you know, was Eberitus, is that his name? Uh, Eberus. Eberus. So Jeff Bridges. So it's Eberus, Thanatos, Nix. It's like, there's a lot there. I can deal with Karen and I can okay. deal with Helen. But like, I don't know. Uh, but however, the way that you've described it and the way that I'm picturing it in my head with sort of like the macabre, like it's Day of the Dead, but grayscale. Yes, like, exactly that. That, yeah. that's, that seems at least going to look Fucking awesome. Yeah. Well, this thing, I'm just a bit of an... Because like, I need names for dead people. I don't know if you want to call them Gerard, Gerard and etc. So I went to Greek mythology. I went yeah. to my, my safety net. And I was like, well, of course they're going to have a deity for death. And have for, I know Charon from the, the game, uh, game of Thrones, the God of War games. Yeah. Um, so we probably could tone down the kind of really heavy thing. But if you're going to have the Grim Reaper... As one of your main characters. Fucking go all out on having... Now, I will point out, as Rachel pointed out to me... This is essentially the storyline of Nick, little Nicky, starring Adam Sandler. Hmm. <laughs> Which I realised after finishing writing, went, oh fuck, I remade little Nicky as Mike Oh no. Um, I'd like to feel it's a bit more than that. Well, it's a bit better than little Nicky. It Don't must be said. Little, little Nicky's all right. Um, but yeah, so this one doesn't have a talking dog though, so you know, definitely not going to score high. So I can't deny that I haven't seen Little Nicky, and therefore I can't <laughs> deny that I may have played a little bit of, of my thinking in this. But yeah, that's my offering. <laughs> nice. um, now, of course, at the end of the episode, we're going to invite you to comment, email us, tell us on social media who you think won. But don't do that until you hear Michael's pitch. It's my turn. So my pitch kind of went through a couple of stages. I was really struggling with bands to begin with. I tried doing a 30 Seconds to Mars one, and that really fell apart really quickly. There's something to be said about Jared Leto's songwriting that means there's not much outside of The Kill that has a story. Okay. And I was really forcing together songs. I went to Fallout Boy, and I really couldn't get a movie I liked out of that. And then I was like, oh, I could do Biffy. No, I can't. The movie's coming out. I settled... On Panic at the Disco, which is not a band that I've been into for very long. Okay. In fact, the album that I've named my movie after is the first album of theirs I actually like. Like, it's the first I heard it. I was like, this is what I've been missing? Okay. I fucking love it. My movie is called Death of a Bachelor. Oh. Uh, based on the 2016 album that was released in 2016, obviously. Um, I've done much the same thing with you, Darren. I've shoehorned every single song Good. In okay. the soundtrack, as well as a couple of peppering of their other hits Yep. Uh, for punctuation in the story. So, um, we open up on small town Missouri. Uh, we travel through a bunch of quaint streets with small businesses. It's a white picket neighbourhood until we get to a chapel. Uh, that chapel's filling up for a wedding. An anxious man, Hal, played by Noah Emmerich from The Americans... Oh, okay, good choice. <laughs> he, he, he's not our main, don't worry. He's okay, just a side no, character. Uh, Seaman! Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the beam and semen. Beam and semen. <laughs> wow. So wow. he's waiting at the altar. <laughs> Just really two fucking crazy horses. He's waiting at the altar um, with an impatient pastor who asks a young man called Alexander, played by R.J. Siler, who you might know as Billy Cranston from the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers remake. Yes, okay, cool. Who was the best part of that. Yes, he was. Um, asked to go and look for his best friend and the son of the groom, who's also acted as best man. Um, pastor says this isn't the first time that he's been late to service. Um, it's pretty bad on the day of your, your father's wedding. Don't do this shit. Outside the church, we find our main character, Robbie, played by Ezra Miller. Okay. Who is fooling around with the pastor's daughter, bragging about how he's going to blow the town wide open. He's going to expose the scandals that's that's going on. Alexander comes in and is like, 
dude, you're doing? Get up. Come on, we've got to go. He's dragged back to the ceremony um, where Robbie immediately starts arguing with his father about the wedding, saying that his father um, had moved on too quickly from from his mom. Um, this, this, this wedding's a sham, you know. Uh, but Hal puts his foot down, says, you better behave, you don't disrupt the day. Uh, so during the ceremony, Robbie and Alex are invited to perform a song. Um, so there's already tension. The town's already got kind of like a looking the, at the two with beady eyes. Even though Alex is more accepted by the community, Robbie's like the bad egg, the right. black sheep. Um, Robbie comes on stage and says, here's a song for my father and his new wife, who truly, truly deserve each other. Um, the song is performed acoustically uh, and sort of brings to light um, sort of things that the town didn't know about the new stepmom. I didn't. I haven't cast the new stepmom, unfortunately. Okay, that's fine. Um, and you've got to start strong. So that song is I Write Sins, Not Tragedies. I thought so. Performed acoustically. So they get as far as poor groom's bride is a whore and everyone, big gasp, as, as, as Robbie's charging on with the song... The mic's taken away from him. The music comes, stop. Well, stops being sung by the band and playing in the background of the procession turning on the boys, chasing them out of the church, and they run down the street, take refuge in the one place in the town they feel safe, the record shop. The owner remarks that Robbie's mother wouldn't like her son being such a devil, but agrees to, to keep them until everybody calms down. Come the night, they help the owner close up, they go home. Robbie climbs in through the window... His, ro- his father obviously knows this trick, barges straight into his room. He explodes, he throttles him, saying, that, "And you know, why would you do this on my big day? Um, Robbie's like, well, you're a jerk for remarrying. I wish I'd left with mum when she went to LA. Dad, and his dad says, well, she's probably a washed-up Hollywood failure like everybody else who thought they could make it big. Robbie's father throws Robbie out, well, Hal throws Robbie out of the house, gives him a handful of belongings, and says if he's so certain about following his mum into following taking up a career in music, you're free to do it now. Uh, So Robbie ends up calling the pastor's daughter, asking her to run away with him. She refuses, saying that, you know, my dad says, no, this isn't a good idea. The pastor takes the phone off the the daughter and says, you're a lost cause, just like your mum, and the sooner you leave the town, the better. At Alex's home, there's a similar conversation going on, a lot more reserved, though. He didn't write the song. Mm. Um, Well, Alex gets arranged to go and stay with her grandmother for for the next two days, but... Um, he doesn't go. They The two meet up the next day at the record shop to tell the owner that they're both skipping town. The owner's a little bit saddened because it's two, the only two customers he ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, but he says to Alex, I've actually got a box of your mother's stuff here and it's got record demo tracks that she recorded, um, a bunch of her old tapes. She's got a couple of photographs in here. Uh, and Robbie's rootling through the stuff and he is inspired to follow in the footsteps. This is the best opportunity he's got. They're just going to go, him and Alex, best friends, going down to L.A. Which brings along the song Golden Days, which is the first track, well, the first track from uh, Death of a Bachelor that I'm using. It's not the first in the record, but Golden Days. So obviously listen to that, you can kind of get the picture of the pair of them packing their stuff up, uh, throwing it into the car, flipping the birds of their parents and getting out of town. Um... So they go on the long drive. Uh, they're both hopeful that they can have a better life away from the overly religious sort of 
he says, she says, town mm-hmm. that they have in Missouri. Uh, when they arrive in LA, they do what anybody who turns up in LA does first. They dope, they go in all the tourist traps, they take in all the sights and the heats. Um, this is where we get a little bit of a sprinkling from the new album that Panic of the Disco just released. Uh, we get a little snippet from Hey Look Ma, I Made It. So at the end of the first chorus, that's where the song will cut out and it's going to sort of smash cut to the two having to sleep in Alex's car, to which one of the boys remarks, so running away to LA, bringing your mum's stuff, trashing your dad's place. All of that you thought of, but you never thought of somewhere to stay. Yet remind me to think again when you're, let's say you've got it all figured out. Um, So the next day, the pair escaped in apartments, listings in a diner. They settle on the absolute bare bones, cheapest place they can find. And they both take on absolutely terrible low-paying jobs. Robbie ends up working at a music store and Alex takes on work at a local bar. Uh, the pair are struggling to, to put you know, money on the table. They're struggling to get anywhere that will let them perform so they can't really chase their dreams until they take a day out trip out to Venice Beach to go and take a look at what's going on down there. Um, they're busking, just as you do. It's like, well, no one's really interested. But they, down the road, they can see a guy who's drawn a little crowd. Um, and he's a fantastic drummer. He's just going at, he's got incredible motion and rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, and after he's finished his set, Robbie and Alex introduce themselves as Utah's most, re- sorry, not Utah, Missouri's most rebellious music act, uh, which the drummer, whose name is Travis, and he's played by Lewis Pullman, uh, who was in, oh God, what's it called? It was, he was in uh, Bad Times at the Air Royale. He okay. was the, the bellhop. It was really good. So he laughs them off. Uh, Robbie's pleading with him to reconsider... Uh, to consider drumming for them or joining together or jamming out sometimes. Travis is initially refusing, saying, you're just some dudes on the street. Why would I play with you? I don't know who you are. Alex says to him, I have bar credit. Travis is like, I'm fucking in. (laughs) Uh, So we smash cut to the three boys, pounding down whiskeys and sharing stories on a slow day in, in the bar that Alex works at. They're all discussing how they moved out of the hometowns, chasing the dream, uh, and Travis says, right, okay, I'll play a few songs with you if we qualify for the open mic night. Uh, so get a little quick montage showing the three, rehearsing, drinking, and forming a bond. The night of the open mic comes, and the band are taking the stage to a mostly full but otherwise unimpressed and not really listening room. Um, and they take the stage with another song from an old album, Nicotine. So they don't get far into that song until they realise that they are really failing to get the attention of anybody in the room. Uh, So after the lukewarm reception, Robbie goes outside and begins to smoke a cigarette and he's looking at the Polaroid of his mother that he's been keeping in his pocket, wondering if the dream is dead. He turns round to go back into the bar, flicks his cigarette away, but he hears a voice calling to him. And he's sort of like moving down the alleyway going, is anybody there? What's, What's going on? Two red circles just beaming back at him bright. Um, and you can just he's like what the fuck is this then all of a sudden this sort of like humanoid black pulsating scribbly shape just comes out and goes it looks like you're having a little bit of trouble with that dream I can lend a hand like this this kind of like smooth talking weird fucking creature okay um, he's like fantastic he's like and he says give me a hand I'll be your saving grace don't let the dream die here Robbie agrees goes to shake his hand and the thing just shoots up his arm. It like moves up like venom and enters his body. Um, this is the first appearance of our new main character, Murmur, who is a demon. He's more of a... Well, he describes himself as a muse, 
but he is flat out a fucking demon and right. he has possessed Robbie so and he, he gets Eminem's Venom yeah Venom I've actually got a similar song to that now which comes from the um, Death of a Bachelor it's album Carnage <laughs> Um, so yeah, he's Murmury's thrilled to be paired up with a human again, as you can hear in Emperor's New Clothes. Oh. So the so Murmury's now sharing Robbie's body. In that song, you can hear lyrics like "I'm taking back the crown, finders keepers, losers weepers." It's all playing on the fact that this isn't the first time that Murmur has possessed somebody. Uh, but he's going to help Robbie realize his dream. He heads back inside the venue. A new performer's already on stage. Uh, this is a girl called Maggie, who I've got played by Taylor Momsen from The Pretty Reckless. You might also know her from Gossip Girl and the little girl from The Grinch. Oh, I thought it was a little girl from The Grinch. She's gone all crack addict. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She's a keyboard player, so she's up on stage performing a keyboard arrangement of another Panic, uh, Panic at the Disco song. Lying is the most fun a girl can have without taking her clothes off. During that song, uh, Robbie and the rest of the band are going to crash that performance uh, and they start adding further instrumentation to the song so it sort of builds up in stages until we get the full version of that song by the time we get to the final chorus of So Testosterone Boys, Harlequin Girls, Dance the Beat, Hold a Lover Close. Um, Almost immediately, everyone's okay with this. Like, she's not mad that they've crashed the thing. The guys Mm -hmm. knew that they wanted to join. Inside of Robbie's head... Murmur is talking to him. He's like, oh, yes, sorry, I didn't introduce myself. That was rude of me. It's been a long time since, well, since I've had this kind of arrangement. You can call me Murmur, and I suppose you might call me a muse, a demon, if you want to get biblical. Point is, look at the crowd eating you up. That's me. That's what I can do for you. I can make them listen. And I don't just mean in dive bars. I mean pumping up your Spotify numbers. I mean influencing people and getting to do exactly what you want. Because that's what you want, right? People to listen. You want fame. Check out that motherfucker in the back looking you up with her hungry eyes. That's a record exec. You're fucking welcome. So, like, Murmur's already putting his foot down. Okay. They finish the song and, he, and like, he kind of, like, morphs off his body to look at him a bit like in Venom. And he's like, we're going to do some great things together. Venom! After the song is over, the band sort of come back round and Maggie especially is like, what the hell was that? Why, why did you just do that? Why mm. was I okay with that? Um... But before they can sort of figure out what the hell was going on, they are approached by the record exec, uh, Kent Rogers, played by Seth MacFarlane. Okay. Oh, yeah, okay. He's got that kind of, like, slick, greasy vibe that I like. Uh, He offers the boys demo time, but Robbie says, you either bring the girl with us or we don't take any deal. And she's like, he's like, fine, cool. And so they go into a montage. The band are signing their record deal. Uh, they're treated to some fancy LA digs. They've got like a big apartment all to themselves. They're settling into the good life of the music star. They're buying new clothes. They're buying new instruments. And they're taking in, you know, the hills. This is where they live now. In the studio, Maggie and Robbie are beginning to clash. Uh, the two are criticising each other's styles and uh, really criticising their lifestyles especially. They're both sort of like trying to make each other out as well, you're the desperate one, you need me. No, no, you're the desperate one. Uh, with the song L.A. Devotee. So during that song, it is pretty much a duet. They're both having a go at each other. They're both calling each other by the title L.A. Devotee. They're not trying to say that they're anything special. They're just another person in L.A. Uh, but with Murmur's influence, the clash between the two is spun into the song, which ends up going into the studio. They end up singing it together. It goes straight to number one. Uh, Ken takes the band out for a celebration after their first number one hit. Ken strikes up conversation with Robbie, saying, 
You've got one too, eh? You know, a shadow. A demon. Telling you what to do. So Kent's kind of revealing that, like, I already know how this shit works. Um, it, as it turns out, you're not the only one. There are hundreds of fucking demons all running the music business, the movie business, the modelling business. Everything. LA is run by demons, which is ironic because it's the city of angels. Ah, okay. So those with demonic influence, as it turns out, in this world, get more and go further. Um, so Murmur is allowing Robbie to see just how many demons there are. And they're, they're overlooking this club and just like every booth, every table, there's at least one just sort of like hanging over, joining in. Right. It's this really cool fucking, like, like all these scribbly sort of like... Sh- we've both gone with demons not everyone can see. I know, right? I forgot to mention, the demon is voiced by Brendan Urie, who is the lead singer of Panic! at the Disco. Ah, I probably should have mentioned that. That's, yep, that's a nice little I've bit got, of I've got to, got to get him in there. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, so Murmur and Ken explain that they can do anything they want, the two cheers to a good night, and then we smash cut to the next one, like, it's click, smash cut. Uh, the pad is trashed. It's completely fucked. It's crowded with, like, nameless, semi-naked people. You saw panning across what has clearly been a complete night of debauchery. And Travis wakes up, he's like, what the fuck happened? And we get the answer from Robbie in the form of a musical number. Uh, don't threaten me with a good time. So during that song, it's going back and forth between explaining what's happening in the apartment and just scenes of total, you know, total celebrity chaos. People are doing drugs, people are stealing shit, trashing stuff. You eventually see how the apartment got into the state it's in. There's fucking stolen shopping trolleys everywhere. It's awesome. Um, So during that sequence, we actually see Murmur sort of egging Robbie on to do bigger and stupider things like longer lines of cocaine, Jumping out of balconies, throwing things from the apartment out and just racking up the bill. That kind of stuff. Uh, So the band then start wrapping up their album and it shoots number one, obviously. Another montage of them doing the media circus tour, appearing on late night shows, shooting music videos, interviewing for magazines like Rolling Stone, appearing on podcasts, you know, smoking a dope. Why not? Um, The band are starting to work on some new material and this is when Robbie really starts to become a bit more megalomaniacal about the instrumentation and the singing. So he clashes with Travis first, the drummer, uh, over his playing style, saying that he could lay down a better beat than he ever could. Um, And this is when Robbie quickly, sort of like in his head, sort of nudges Murmur and going, hey, I need you to do that thing. That that thing? That thing we've been practicing. Ah, cool. Um, And Robbie just goes to town, having never touched a drum kit in his life, with one of the best drum solos you've ever seen. So Murmur has now been residing in Robbie for so long that he's starting to grow in terms of power and abilities. He can make Robbie do anything he fucking well pleases. Check this riff, it's fucking tasty! (laughs) Essentially, it's that kind of stuff. Um, So, Travis accuses Robbie of being controlling and an attention seeker, to which Robbie obviously doesn't respond very well. Uh, And out of spite, records an entire song by himself, does all the instruments, does all the singing, and edits it just to say, like, Fuck you. The song is crazy equals genius. So with that song, what Robbie's saying is, you know, you'll never be as good as me. Anything that you can do, I can do backwards and heels. You can set yourself on fire, but you're never going to burn. You want to be just like Mike Love, but you'll never be Dennis Wilson. It's that kind of, you can always be as good as, as you can be, but it will never be as good as me. And on finishing the song, where he's doing some kind of one-man bang crazy shit, all instruments all the time, he's just like, you're out of the band. Fuck you. I don't need you. Clearly, I don't. Look at me. Um, Kent, the manager, begrudgingly says, 
I gotta back Robbie up. He's the face. You know, I need him. So Travis is out. Uh, Maggie and Alex at this point take a break from recording and go to the old, the old bar where they used to work and discuss the possibility of leaving. Maggie says they're all famous enough. Once work gets out about Travis being kicked out of the band, the expectation is that we'll break up. We could break off. We could have our own solo careers. What do you say? Let's let's do this all together. Alex starts making excuses for Robbie, saying he's just a kid with a dream. He wants to make it big. These episodes are just part of the creative process. Mag hits back with saying, your friend just got rid of our drummer because he didn't like being told he wasn't the best. You have to, you know, wake up and realise that this is the reality we're living in. Robbie's going insane. I joined this band because it was the easiest way to get in that I've had in years. I've been doing this for too fucking long to be ignored. So if he wants to ego trip out, fine. I just take my talents and go. Alex is kind of taken back, but chooses to remain neutral and goes, well, let's just see what happens. It could get better. But we'll think about it if it gets worse. Spoiler alert, it gets worse. Oh, no. Uh, Ag- um, so whilst this is happening, Robbie has gone on a quest across LA. He's trying to find his mother, Joni, who ran away to become a singer. What did you say? He's, he's off to find the Triforce. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a sword. Where's he got that? <laughs> now I'm up in a tree, you know, again. <laughs> no, no. Um, so he's trying to find his mum, hopefully performing at any of the venues across LA. He's asking... Asking for Joni Wright, where is she? Um, he ends up in some kind of dead ass part of town, like one of the smallest possible clubs. Like, where can I find her? The guy's like, "Hey, you're that dude from Manifest Destiny." That's the name of the band, by the way. Manifest Destiny. Okay. He's like, "I need to get your autograph." Like, oh, okay, fine. I'm here. I may as well. A homeless woman kind of wanders in, like, slams the door in, and is like, starts yelling about. Um, you know, try, trying to get a spot and stuff like that. And, and one of the staff says, get out of here, Joni. You're not allowed to come in here anymore. Robbie's like, Joe, what? Turns round, it's his mom, uh, played by Patricia Clarkson, uh, who you might know from Easy A as Emma Stone's mum. Yes. And also from Sharp, Sharp Objects, where she was brilliant. And of course, Mother Lover. And of course, Mother Lover. Yeah. Oh yeah, I forgot that's mm. her. her and Susan Sarandon. Yes. That's, a, that's a weird one. Um, so... Robbie approaches her. It does take her a little few, a few seconds. You can see there's something going on behind the eyes there. And they reunite. He takes her back to the band's apartment. And they talk about how she crashed and burned pretty much the second she got on the LA circuit. She can't really remember what happened, but she knows she fucked up. Robbie assumes that she's become an addict. And he's like, well, I'll, I'll get you some help. Don't worry about it. But you can stay here. Stay with me. Robbie goes back to the studio, brings Joni with her. And he's like, well, you used to write songs. Why not help me write a song? Um, at that point, Alex and Maggie return and are like, who the fuck's this homeless woman? What the <laughs> fuck? What's she doing? What's she doing in the recording studio? Robbie's like, well, you know, I'm writing a song with her. Like, here's, here's, some, here's some hits from this, from this song. Uh, and then we get sort of like low-cut instrumentational versions of a song called House of Memories. So Robbie tries to calm the, his two bandmates down, but Maggie flips out and he's saying that firing the drummer was one thing, but finding a junkie off the street and stealing her songs is a step too far. This is where Murmur starts sort of like tapping on Robbie's shoulder again, like saying, well, you know, that's that might ruin the band. You can't have this kind of insubordination. You know, you're the front man. you got to step in. And Robbie like fucking flips out, breaks Maggie's keyboard and is like, this is Joni Wright, the best undiscovered artist there ever was. Her work is ten times better than anything you ever came up with. So forgive me for entrusting my family name. You know, I'm the big dog here. You take 
you take what I say as truth. Uh, and you can thank me for the next hit. And that's when he just hits playback on the studio and you get the full instrumentation version of House of Memories. Right. He's already recorded the song. He's like, this is already going to be a hit. Um, so like Maggie Storms out. I was like, I fuck this. I quit. Uh, you get another little montage where the band's, uh, you know, thinning numbers are hitting the headlines. However, public opinion doesn't change because Murmur's got hands in all the fucking things. So Robbie's still America's golden boy. It's just him and Alex left, and they're a duo. Um, they record a new song, it hits the charts. We get that song playing over this entire uh, montage, uh, which is Miss Jackson. This is, of course, the prequel to Sorry Miss Jackson by Outcast. Ah, and I am indeed for real. Mm. Uh, so uh, through that, that song, you kind of get these hints of, you know, kiss the ring and bow down. You're lucky, you were lucky to be here to begin with. Back away from the water, this is mine. And of course, Miss Jackson alluding directly to Maggie saying, you know, you betrayed me because you didn't think I was the best. Essentially, what's what it comes Sorry, down to? Sorry, Miss Jackson. <laughs> I am for real. <laughs> so, um, song hits the charts and people online are quick to figure out that it's about Maggie leaving the band. Uh, and the, seeing the coverage, Maggie starts to shop around for a label that will take her on as a solo act. But she finds herself completely at odds because Kent and Murmur are essentially playing the long game. It's like, we're going to shut you out of every studio. There's no way you're getting anywhere. Back at the band's apartment, Joni's shown to start having these psychiatric episodes. She starts fidgeting and screaming. It's that it's what Robbie thinks is these episodes of her being on the drugs. Mm. But it's just horrible repressed memories, which will come to light later on in the story. Um, Alex is asking Robbie if the reason that he hasn't got his mother admitted or got her into an actual thing because he's just she's just been staying in the band's apartment is because he wants her involved in the creative process. He wants to use her songs. And Robbie does admit he has been focused on writing as much music as he can um, and he thinks that his mum should be the one to make it a reality. Alex calls Robbie out and says, you know, you're, un- you're an unassuming abuser. You're-, you're keeping a woman who's clearly got some problems locked up in a room and rifling through her l- lyrics. This is this is an on. Uh, the two end up having a huge fist fight uh, where people are like, you know, you're a shadow of who you used to be back home. Uh, you know, you need to take it easy for a while. Robbie's saying that I can't stop even if I tried, not whilst I'm in my prime. This is my, uh, this is my moment right now. So Alex is like, I'm going home. I've got to go back to Missouri because this is getting too much. I'm out. Okay. Um, when Alex goes home, he's sort of like taken back into the fold by the church. He's kind of he's kind of absolved. He's taken on, and he starts singing at the church every Sunday, uh, leading to his solo song "Hallelujah." So obviously that song is pretty on the nose. Hallelujah, say your prayers. But you know you get those little tinges of like you know my life started the day I got caught. Like, his career started the day that he got chased out of town, essentially. But he comes back and people are happy to accept him because he's rich and famous now. So it's kind of a double-edged sword on that return. Robbie has now gone it his own way. He's hit out solo. And straight away, he sends out his newest song to celebrate the fact. Victorious. So as that song starts, we kind of have this cool shot of going from Missouri back to LA. It's all like panning over a map and the two songs are kind of blending in together. Um, so we've seen that Robbie has now bought up a house in the hills on his own because he's just cut a new deal. That's where him and his mother have moved in together, um, whose episodes are now getting worse. You know, the convulsions are getting more violent, the screaming through the night. Robbie t- decides it's time to retreat from the party lifestyle. 
and just focus on banging out as much music as he can. Um, Kent tries to book him for further gigs, but Robbie's like, no, 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 you don't get to tell the talent what I do. I'm staying at home. I'm working on my magnum opus. Whilst at home one of the days working on this song, and you hear bits of this song being worked on through the entire film, but we only get this song played at the end of the movie, which is the title track, Death of a Bachelor. We're not going to play that here now, but you can just hear like the odd melody and the odd lyric, like... Right. Do I look lonely? I see the shadows on my face. Like, he's just working on it. Like how, what is his Ryan Gosling's working on that song all the way through... Uh... La La Land, yeah. yes. Yeah, so it's a little bit like City of Stars. It's that kind of thing. Right. But one of the days where he's just about to finish it, Joni actually fucking snaps. Her mind breaks. But she's able to remember what has caused the psychosis in the episodes. And she grabs Robbie by the shoulders like, don't make any deals. Don't let anything control you. LA is controlled by demons. I gave myself to one, but she can't finish the sentence before she can. Murmur has leapt off her body and sort of like snapped, not snapped her neck, but like slashed her spine like that. Right. She's like this like grisly black tendril, like like that, paralyzed. She can't say anything. She can't move. She may as well be dead. Mm. And uh, Murmur's just kind of like appearing again, like in this kind of humanoid form directly in front of them. It's like, you were going to find out one way or another, I guess, but congrats on being oblivious this long. So he reveals what happened in the past, what happened to Joni. Um, she was Murmur's original host. Uh, she actually broke the deal pretty quickly um, before he was able to do any of the mad controlling shit and power enhancing and stuff like that yeah. by going to um, the, the chapel where she grew up in San Francisco and getting rechristened, which obviously... Shoots a demon out the body. Purges, yeah. Purges, yeah. Um, so knowing that, he's like, well, I can't let this carry on. Robbie starts to threaten. He's like, well, I'm going to break our deal then. Uh, unless you help her, unless you make her better. I need you to use your powers. Murmur's like, absolutely not. I'm going to show you exactly how in control I am right now. Um, so because of how much Robbie's been sinning and double-crossing his friends and reveling in his pride and his mm. greed... Um, Murmur can now just completely independently puppeteer Robbie if he wants to. He can get locked behind his own eyes, uh, which is a scene that we see when he has a very one-sided fist fight with himself uh, to the tune of this song, The Good, The Bad and The Dirty. Now, we were just joking about that whilst listening to the song that it's like Jim Carrey kicking his own ass. There's elements of that, but also you do see, like, Murmur projecting himself out, right, okay. taunting and being like, you know... Going venom. Yeah, venom. Um, so Robbie's life really begins to spiral out of control. Fearing that Murmur's going to take over next, he tries to right his wrong. He tries to call the members of the band to explain what's happening. Uh, Maggie and Travis are completely denying the calls. The two have actually gone out together on their own venture. Travis is now managing Maggie and trying to get her more gigs. Um, he tries to call in Kent, the band manager, who says that, you know, this is the price you pay for success. I, I thought this is what you wanted. Um, you know, it's not good for me to work against a demon. They're the only thing keeping my payroll going. So you're on your own, kid. He's completely helpless. He tries getting in contact with Alex and he tries to explain what's going on, but murmurs stopping the words, there's a demon in my fucking body coming out. Help! Yeah, so the only thing he can do is say, I just need you to help get mom into a care home. Like, I, I, this is all I want. That's all I want. And when Alex arrives, Robbie's house is like completely fucked up. The windows are boarded up. He's kind of like receded. There's just like a piano in the corner and he's just looking after Joni, who's just completely what seems to be brain dead. Mm. Um, 
they get her into the car and Alex's like, what's happening? Robbie's like, I can't, I can't tell you. Even if I had the words to do so, they wouldn't come out, literally. Um, inside his head, uh, he sings this song to his mom, saying essentially, this is, this is the only way I can help, but I have to go. There's only, there's not many ways I can fix this problem. Uh, we get the song, This is Gospel, to help us out with that. So in that kind of imagery, you you kind of get this idea that he's slowly falling into hell. She's being lifted up above. He's saying, I've got to let you go. You've got to let me go. This is the only way that we're, you know, it's going to work out for you. You need to get help. Um, So Maggie has actually made her big comeback as a solo artist and is performing on a late night TV show. I mean, uh, performing her new song. She's gone back to being just a keyboard player uh, with a song about her experiences in the band, which is called Impossible Year. So that performance is really all about, you know, Maggie was in a really bad place with the band. You know, there were, you know, guests at the parties all being insincere, talking about how the management and then the, the, the further world controlled by demons had kept her out for so long, but she's broken through it. You know, there's never in, there's never in between, there's never you and me, we're severed from the band. Um... Robbie's watching this just sort of like in a catatonic slump in the in his house. Like, this is what we could have been. This is artistically brilliant. I wish I could have written that. It's the first time he kind of admits to himself, I'm not the best. Um, Kent's also watching it and he kind of bre- breaks into Robbie's house in a bit of a furor and he's like, this is bullshit. We need to get you signed up for a show. You know, it's been ages, it's months since you've been seen in public we need to get you out there and murmurs essentially saying um oh sorry no so at this point robbie wants to refuse wants to say i'm done mm-hmm. but murmurs damn well in control wearing him like a skin suit once again and going absolutely let's go inside his own head murmurs got him sort of like pinned down like you can see out of his eyes like in my head it's like this kind of it's two windows that you can just view, view the right. world out and murmurs just like this shape moving around yeah, him and yeah. saying like, look, you're the, Robbie, you're the easiest ride that I've ever had. And you know, the longer that I'm your host, you know, the more you give into the dies, the more powerful I'm going to get. And it's also going to delay, you know, me going back to hell. There's no way I'm giving this up. If I go back to the underworld, I'm there forever. You know, if I'm not able to make people sin and be greedy... I can't exist. So you're the sacrificial lamb. Alex goes to get um, Robbie's mom admitted, but she's able to break some words through her paralysis and just says, save my son. Alex misconstrues this as like, well, what the fuck's Kent doing? Like He's the only one left with any ties to him. So he calls the office like, I need to have a meet with Kent Rogers. I want to get re-signed. You know, where can I find him? He's like, oh, actually, they're going to be at this big show tonight. It's, you know, it's Robbie Wright's big gig. Go, go on down. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so stuck in his own mind, Robbie is watching Murmur through the de- the big day of like the big return, doing the press junkets and all this, and he's just looking out. Um, at the concert, we finally get the song that Robbie was working on all this time, and Murmur's like, "I'm gonna steal this. Fuck it. I'm gonna make loads of money. I'm gonna live forever. Mm-hmm. I'm stealing your song." The song is, of course, "Death of a Bachelor." There we go. So during that concert, this song is being performed, and we can see really how the lyrics are reflecting what Robbie's experiencing whilst Murmur's the one belting them out inside Robbie's body. It's this wonderful dichotomy going on of the, you know, 
people have told me I, I, I don't look the same, maybe I lost weight, I lost my soul is what I've lost. Um, so during this final number, Alex has made his way backstage with this gig and has confronted Kent. He's like, what the fuck's going on with Robbie? Kent pulls a gun. He's like, you do not get to talk to Robbie. You get the fuck out of here right now. Um, stay out of our business. So Robbie's coming off stage as the as the concert ends and Alex darts towards Robbie as if to like say, I need to save you. Ken shoots, hoping to hit Alex. Yes. Um, and then like just this black curtain just thump, stops the bullet straight away and murmurs come out. And it's the first time in the entire film where he's been visible to other people. Right. He's mostly just been inside... Robbie's head, yeah. but this time everyone's seen this fucking demon just latch out of, you know, the base of Robbie's spine, arc mm. over him, and stop a bullet. Um, and you know, Murmur just screams at Kent like, "What the fuck are you doing? You realise that could have gone straight through this Joker and into the goods? What the fuck are you playing at?" Uh, and in that instant, Robbie's actually in control. He like Murmur's like just like a full-on projection, yeah, and he's back and he can move his hand. He does the only thing he thinks that is going to get everybody out of this situation. Snatches the gun from Kent's hand. Bam! Right through the head. Oh! Yeah. Robbie's just going to straight up kill himself because he's severing the connection. Right. Okay. Murmurs then completely, like, he's rejected. He's rejected from the world. He dissipates. He's like, motherfucker. And then he fades out. Right. We get an ending montage um, over a song called Far Too Young to Die, which sounds like this when you listen to it. So during that Far Too Young to Die, we hear lyrics like, you know, the crowd hangs heavy on either side. It's talking about the public reaction to Robbie's apparent suicide and, you know, his funeral going on. The police have turned up to question people at the concert to begin with. They retrieve the body. Kent's arrested, but obviously he's released because everybody's got their hands in demon stuff in Hollywood. Um, a media storm starts erupting and Maggie and Travis are quick to exploit it to further their own careers. Uh, meanwhile... Joni is shown to receive the news whilst she's been sectioned. Uh, I don't show it, but I, I really highly want to kind of like hint towards that sends her completely over the edge and she might take her own life. It's mm -hmm. up to the audience to sort that out. Okay. Um, Alex goes ho back home to Missouri and attends Robbie's funeral with Hal. They're shown to reconcile and so all is forgiven. Um, Robbie then just like bolts, eyes open. He's awake. But he's in his version of hell, which is this soundless void where he's unable to spe speak and be heard. He's completely mute. And then, like, you just, you just see the sort of this black pulsating thing in the distance. He's like, oh, for fuck's sake, am I stuck here with... Vump! Yep, Murmur's back. And he's like, so you're calling this a win? You lost your friends, you lost your family, and now you lost your life. And the worst part is that nobody's going to learn anything. Sure, they'll mourn you now, but you'll just be someone else's bad example. And by that point, there'll be somebody else who's willing to follow you, make exactly the same mistakes that you did. LA's not exactly lacking for people who give it to, who would do anything for fame. See you later, kid. And he shoots off. Robbie's trapped in this soulless void. Did he win? Didn't he win? I, I personally don't think he won. Um, and then it starts to do the credits, but then we get a little bit of a stinger at the end. And there's, in another bar somewhere in LA, there's another singer getting ready. It's actually Brendan Urie. Hey. Um, and then the shape just kind of like comes up in the dressing room. He's like, oh, I wrote the, the stinger line down. Where is There he goes. He's singing Death of a Bachelor because that's the song he's going to perform. He's like, that's a nice song. I used to know the guy who wrote that. 
and then cut. So it's implied that Murmur's just about to make another deal. This is just okay. part of the cycle for him. And that's my pitch, Darren. Oh, I did not see that ending coming. Yeah, it's. I wanted to do something really different because jukebox musicals always end on big happy notes. Even mine did, and mine's about death. Yeah, yours is about cancer and ended nicer <laughs> than mine. I really wanted to do like the whole... I wanted it to be a tragedy. We haven't had many tragic ah. musicals outside of Sweeney Todd, and I really took heavy inspiration from Sweeney Todd on this one. So it one. turns out you actually write tragedies, not sins. Yeah. Okay, interesting. There we go. Well, I wrote tragedies and sins. Ah! ah! But there we go. Duality. Um, right. Okay. I really liked him. I liked... I, I feel like you've put a lot of stuff in there, hopefully intentionally, of like the whole LA being controlled by demons. I mean, you could make a Ku Klux Klan member's wet dream by just changing the line of LA is run by demons to LA is run by the Jewish people. Yeah. <laughs> it's essentially the same thing they believe already. Um, so I really like that and how it like affects, how it alienates rock stars and why they're all pushing people away because they're all demons, why so many of them die so young because of all that business. Yeah. So. Very well done there. I like very intentional. all the themes. Very nice. I think the, the criticism I have, yeah, I, you kind of levy with mine as well. I think the, the middle bit, prior to the kind of real demon stuff kicking in, was a little bloated. Mm. But I feel that's again because you want to have all the songs from the album in there. Yeah. My kind of creaks in places from just trying to fucking fit all the songs in. Yeah. Um, so if we were to go for a proper treatment again by somebody else, we would both have a lot of our songs cut for fucking time. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot in the middle where it's like, I'm trying to get through them doing the Seven Deadly Sins, yeah. but I've really had to trim that down, but I also had to crowbar the songs in, and it was yeah. a whole thing. It's difficult, but I think you've managed it very well. I managed to get a very well-thought-out story. Um, I See, I'm going back and forth on the ending. Like I, I appreciate the balls to go for a... Um, a sad ending to go for a, a, an Infinity War ending. Yeah. Oh, the I didn't. I forgot to mention the end when he's like, "I used to know the guy who wrote that." You, yeah. re, you reprise the song that they played when he entered the body. Right. So you get okay. the finders, keepers, losers, weepers as the credits roll. Lovely. Really okay. Cool. So I think as I like it, it's like a, a it's a cautionary tale. Yeah, wrote a Shakespearean tragedy to warn people of the vices of, of Hollywood and fame and all that good stuff. But it feels like. I don't know, I just feel that it takes... That's a left turn. Yep. <laughs> and it's not like a gentle careen around a, around, a, around a corner. It's a fucking handbrake fucking skid into that thing. It, it's, a, it's a fast and furious move, if you will. Yeah, let me sleep on that. When I listen to it again when I'm editing, I may appreciate it more. I just feel like that was quite a bump. But I don't know if that's a good... That, that could be a good thing, that you don't see it coming. And that was the endings that really fucking hit you. But yeah. Yeah, just like... The, like, especially with the altercation where he's just it's just such a quick thing yeah. you don't dwell on the fact that he shoots himself in the head yeah. it's just everyone's arguing and bang gone right okay it's supposed, <laughs> to, it's supposed to be kind of like a, a your hair did an adorable little flick as you did that <laughs> that was amazing because you were um, jokes on an audio podcast I know well um, those are your choices everybody yeah um, I really wish there was a better way a more punchy way than just saying who won who's next you, you decide, decide. Um, if you have any thoughts and ideas on these at all and want to vote for who you think won this episode there are many places that you can do that you can do that on Facebook, Twitter and SoundCloud under the username FowleyNT that's F-O-U-L-E-N-T you can also hit me up personally and add that Mike Owen on Twitter and Instagram to tell me that obviously you want to go and see the Death of the Bachelor movie 
alternatively, you could hit me up on Twitter at the Guthridge and tell me that you know you actually want to go and see the Black Prey movie because he's not okay. Um, I'm so proud of that tagline. <laughs> yeah. I'm too proud of that tagline, if anything. Um, yeah, pros and cons for both ones, but I, I think it's pretty even. I feel we've both we've gone very different routes. Mm. I mean, they're both slightly. We like, both ended up with both got demons. They're both dead at the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's all. It's they're they're not too distant away from me. It's not like one of us has done like fucking techno music and the other's yeah. done like fucking hardcore grind. So quite, if you're not a, if you're not into mid two thousands pop punk, this probably wasn't the two hours for you. Not really. Um, <laughs> but why? Now we tell you. Now we tell you. Um, but yeah, please do let us know which one you like. And if you have any ideas for pictures you would like to do, we're going to really kind of double down on this one because I think it's our most unique podcast, and I really do like doing them. We've got a few more in the bag. Uh, one of which we're recording tonight. We'll tell you about that when you hear it. Um, but you can go listen to our podcast. Obviously, we've got all the wrap-up stuff from the end of 2018 and a preview for 2019. Thankfully, we didn't mention a lot of things in January. We didn't. So we're good. So it's been a little bit delayed on our end and we're still getting around a, a new recording schedule. And hopefully, come February, we'll be telling you all the details of um, a new schedule that we're hoping to really fucking nail down this time. Yep. And the big thing that we're doing for 2019... The big gamble, which we'll, we'll, we'll come to. Yeah, live and let die. Um, <laughs> but, you know, plenty to listen to, plenty to read. You can Obviously, there's a lot of still articles on phalentertainment.com. Uh, so thank you very much for listening once again to another episode of Pitching Tense. And we hope to see you with the next movie next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.